podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. The question is, is darts really a sport? It was the worst tackle I've ever seen. Fair play to Joe Root, it was a great knock. There's nothing like a good derby match. It was easily the best 7-9 I've ever hit. Right, come on lads, let's crack on. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast with me, Adam Millichip. My colleague Nigel can't be with us today, but I'm still joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Tom and Thomas. How are you boys? We're doing fine. Good, thank Good. Tom and Thomas are students at Tatnall Wood School in Wolverhampton. Tatnall Wood School is a school for children and young adults with autism, and we have set up this podcast to provide our pupils with a fantastic chance to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women. Joining us on the TWS Sports Podcast today is an England cricketer and Ashes hero, Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Hoggard. Good morning. You made your England debut in 2000. What was that like and what are your memories of it? Yeah, to get you call up for England, superb. It's a dream's come true. Uh, managed to make it at Lords, which walking through Lords to an empty stadium always sends the hair on the back of your neck up. Um, and to, to be... Walk into the home changing room where all the history and all the great players have stood, uh, dragging your cricket kit behind you to make a debut for your country is is, is like a dream come true. It, I can't put it into to words, but uh, loads of pride, excitement, and everything that goes with it, and to and to and to be able to say that you've played at Lords for your country, it, 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 it's dream worthy. But who who did you play in that game, Hoggy? And um, we played the West Indies, and I think it was the hundredth Test match we played against the West Indies. So it was the hundredth Test match at Lords, um, and it was my debut. So there was a lot of lot of history surrounding my my debut. We need to talk about the famous Ashes series in two thousand five. It was the first time that England have won the Ashes since nineteen eighty seven. That was an unbelievable series. What are your memories looking back on it now? Yeah, there's so many ebbs and flows in that series. Um, 2005, what a series. People have watched a lot more cricket than I have said. It's one of the best series that's ever been played. Um, to go up against the the old enemy, Australia, who were dominant in the late 90s, early 2000s, and crushed everyone between before them, and to go up and, and beat them at a home series while we're still on terrestrial TV, to have 10,000 people without tickets trying to get into a full Old Trafford on the final day, just sort of like encapsulated how much the, the series had um, gripped the nation and how many people were watching cricket in 2005. Uh, I still get thanks for sort of like 20-year-olds saying, you're the reason we started playing cricket. And to me, that is the biggest accolade you can ever get in sport. It's not the results or anything else that you do. It's that you inspired a generation to, to follow in your footsteps. And I think... That's what 2005 did. It inspired a generation to start watching cricket or to start playing cricket. Yeah, I can I completely agree. I'm I'm into my cricket. I was into my cricket before that Ashes series, but that Ashes series just the whole country went went mad, and it really, as you say, got everyone involved in cricket who maybe didn't think, especially Test cricket was was exciting, but every single game in that series was exciting. Um, 
was it I can't remember which was it Edge Baston where was it Harmison got the uh, the final, final wicket yeah, final yeah. Wicket. they were caught, caught behind yeah um, it was um, Kasperovic caught behind but I think they needed 110 runs with two wickets left so it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to win and we were just going to turn up on the fifth morning to to take the two wickets and we'll be we'll be all right that didn't happen. <laughs> it got down to them needing two runs to win, and that was as close as you can you can win again. We, we actually won the Test match by one run, and you can't get any closer than that. And the atmosphere that was around there, the the ebbs and flows of we've lost this, no, we've won this game, we've lost this game, we've won the, and the whole host of roller coaster of emotions. And to finally go on and, and win that game at Edgebast and to go one all in that series, I firmly believe if Australia had pulled that off, we'd have lost five minutes. It has been called the most thrilling series of all time. Is there one standout moment in the series for you? Again, so I, because it was such a thrillist, there were so many moments that you could pick out and say that was that was a crucial moment or a standout moment. Um, but to be in the middle. Um, at or, uh, Trent Bridge with Ashley Giles having knocked off the runs to to go two one up in in that series um, was was brilliant. Just the roar of the crowd, the relief uh, of hitting the winning runs to be stood in the middle um, with your with a very close friend having gone to battle with Australia and coming out on top and to walk off to to everybody's relief and. That, the, the applause and everything that you got surrounding that victory. Um, but, yeah, in that middle, was in the cauldron. You, you, can't, you can't buy it, you can't replace it. So that feeling will ever remain in my head, being in the middle while we, while we managed to go 2-1. Was that the game where you smashed Brett Lee through the covers? Smashed him, yeah, <laughs> smashed him. That shot's up there with the, the Jack Leach one, I think. <laughs> I think so I've got a 14 year old son that says you play cricket for how long are you remembered for one shot one shot how does that make you feel <laughs> preparing for your interview I, I watched highlights of it back and Brett Lee was steaming in what 93-94 mile an hour yeah. and he, he gave you a few bumpers didn't he and then pitched yeah, him up and you just <laughs> guided him through the covers he was either trying to kill me or bowl me Yorkers yeah it was, um, <laughs> it was quite a scary place to be um, but I'd much rather be in the middle facing that than be next in watching it. Yeah. Because that is horror. That's an even worse place to be watching it and being so nervous, the anticipation and all the connotations uh, of waiting. While you're in the middle, you haven't got time to think about anything else. You're just trying to um, <laughs> trying to conserve your life because he, he <laughs> rapid. He, he didn't really want to get hit. Uh, so you didn't want to get out, so you were staying in, so you were actually focused on the on the game rather than thinking about the entire game. And it was a, a much easier place to be facing Bradley than to thinking about facing Bradley. Talking about, about batting a little bit, would you rather, as a number 11, face the likes of Bradley? Whoa, 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 <laughs> I was number nine. Don't be putting me down at number 11. Oh, <laughs> most of my career I was at nine or at three. When the batsman couldn't be bothered going out to face because it was a bit dark and it was very tricky, so they thought, Do you know what, we won't sacrifice a, a batter, we'll put Hoggy in instead. Good point. Let me ask that question. What, what is your opinion on a night watchman? Why can't, 
Why can't the likes of Joe Root and Michael Vaughan see out two overs? Well, they've, they've got the better techniques, haven't they, to, to, to see it out. That's why they're batting at three and four anyway. Uh, the, the times and places for, for night watchmen. Um, you, know, you never see a night bowler, do you? <laughs> oh, it's a tricky over. We really need somebody to step up to the mark now. Uh, it's all right. We'll get Tress to do it. You don't get that, do you? <laughs> you always have the bowlers bowling that one. Um, but and then when the going gets tough, the batters run away and the bowlers have to do their job for them again. But, it's definitely yeah, a batsman's game, you, isn't it? But you'd rather lose me um, and then come off the off the pitch rather than lose another batter and come off the pitch. So I do get the I get when you when you're going in for maybe five overs, do not get it if you go in for ten overs. Um, so there's there's horses for courses. And every batsman has a different opinion on it. But if they wanted, I, I quite like doing night watchmen because waiting for bat, waiting to bat is the hardest bit and the most nervous bit. So if you're in uh, at night watchman overnight, that means you go out first thing in the morning and you don't have to worry about bats batting again because you, you're already in there. Yeah. And then when you're out, you can just focus on your bowling and getting ready to, to, to bowl after we've lost all the wickets. What made the Ashes series so special? Uh, well, well, it gets the old old enemy for a start off. Everybody hates Australia, and everybody loves to watch them get beat. Um, we hadn't won the, the the Ashes in nineteen years. Um, as we say, it was still on terrestrial TV. Um, the series itself ebbed and flowed. There were so many different kind of t- every, each team could have won every game. And every session, there was a balancing, uh, a shifting balance of who was in the ascendancy, and it, it close close finishes as well. We we won by two runs. Uh, Edge Baston, um, Australia managed to hold out for a draw, um, nine wickets down at Old Trafford. We managed to win by three wickets at Trent Bridge. So there was a lot of close calls and close finishes and a lot of excitement in the games and some amazing performances. It just had everything you needed in, in a series. The Barmy Army follow, follow England all around the world. What is it like having them follow you around and did they have any songs about you? <laughs> yes, um, they are the amazing. They're the best supporters in the world. Um, to, they they sang when you were winning. They sang when you were losing. They sang when it was tough. They sang when it was easy. They went with you to um, hot climates, cold climates, standing out and being the best fans in the world. Coming up with funny rhetorical songs that they they they, they came up with, having time to to think about what the lyrics should be, not just singing any old song. So yes. The Barmy Army are absolutely fantastic and they're best fans in the world. And I had a couple of songs about me. Um, one was I'm the King of the Swingers. Um, and the other one would have been, um, it was to the tune of Alouette, who is Matty Hoggard, Matty Matty Hoggard, how I love his floppy hat, his struggly hair, his knobbly knees, his big something bottom. Um, his swing bowling and oh, taking time to see it. It, it was brilliant. Barmy Army. High five, top draw, best fans in the world. I think something that what you, you said there about the Barmy Army, which makes them different from like maybe your football fans, is 
they plan and prepare songs and they're, they're proper songs, whereas football fans will just think of maybe songs on the spot, maybe, and they're, they're, they're good songs, but they're your generic songs that you see all the time. The yeah. Barmy Army sing good, funny songs. It's never abusive as such. Mm. It's, it's, it's kind-hearted, it's banter, even like when against Australia. Yeah, obviously you're, you're yeah. abusing them and you're, you're, you're not their fans, but it's, it's light-hearted banter as such. And they, and they print off songbooks as well, so everybody knows the lyrics. So you can get a songbook with all the Miami songs in there. And as you say, they, t- they take the time out to, to do the research to, to make it funny. Uh, to, and the other thing that they do, they sing well and support you, whether you're winning or losing, or times are hard or times are good. They're the, the true fans. The, whatever the situation, you can count on the Miami to be there. Have you ever since since retiring? Have you ever been to watch a game and been in the Barmy Army? Um, I did some commentary in South Africa and went and sat in the in the Barmy Army. Um, I saw Billy the Trumpeter yesterday. Um, we were doing a thing for Chance to Shine yesterday, and, he, and the the Trumpeter was there. But uh, it, they, they are great, absolutely fantastic. Well, we're just going to come on now to to after the Ashes, and 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 there's a few stories that I've. Or the boys have found that we, oh we want to see they're not true. Want to confirm or deny? <laughs> I'm going to deny them. <laughs> After the series had finished, you were invited to Downing Street to meet the, the Prime Minister Tony Blair. Freddie Flintoff said in an interview that he and the other players had weed in the garden. Did you weed in the Prime Minister's garden? Um, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got, I, there, there, there was somebody that did, and it wasn't me. So I'm going to say I'm going to deny that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> According to this, you apparently called Tony Blair and. Can you tell us about this story, please? <laughs> I'm going to have to hold my hand up and say yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we were leaving Ten Downing Street. I was walking behind Michael Vaughan and in front of Tony Blair. And we got to the famous black door and across Downing Street, there must have been 50 yards of photographers all flashing away. And the England team were lining up outside 10 Downing Street. And Tony Blair behind me stood next to me, looked at all the photographers, looked at me and went, (laughs) I wonder what those want. So I just turned around and looked at him. I went, well, the one I thought or you... Everybody was thinking it. I actually called him um, <laughs> that, that word. We were, we were put onto the coach and we got ushered back to the hotel fairly quickly after that. The next morning, it was all over the, the world, basically. <laughs> how how good was that night? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> That's how good it was. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and again, to, to go around London in an open-top bus... Uh, as an English cricket team, you think there's going to be two men and a dog turn up to watch an England cricket team? How wrong we were. It was rammed everywhere we went. There were 10 people deep all down the streets. It was like we'd won the World Cup. It was unbelievable the amount of support we had. Um, Trafalgar went to Trafalgar Square and we couldn't see any, any, any space. It was just rammed full of people. And it was it was an experience you'll never forget. The amount of people that turned up to celebrate 
cricket. And that, as I say, you want to leave a legacy. And that 2005 series definitely left a legacy. I bet you've been asked about that series probably every day for the last 15 years, haven't you? Uh, the yes, mentioned once or twice. <laughs> you received an ME after the Ashes. Who gave it to you and what was that like? Ah, oh, we, we received it from the Queen. So we went down to Buckingham Palace. We we went up in our threes to receive our, our, our MBEs, which was, again, massive pride and a very good moment. Um, we, we had to practice. So they put us in a room before we, we went out to, to receive our MBEs. And they said, right then, in threes, you have to walk up to the Queen, receive your MBE, then walk backwards, turn to your right and walk off because you're not allowed to turn your back on the Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we had to practice walking up to, up to this pretend Queen, backwards steps, turn to our right and walk off. And like true um, professional sports people, that's exactly what we did. We'd walk up, one of us would turn around and turn his back on him, walk back and then turn left and turn right. And they didn't cotton on that we were taking the mickey for the first not like 10, 15 minutes. And they got rather irate that we, we couldn't perform walking forwards and backwards and turning right as a, 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 as a team um, until we actually had to. And we went out to see the Queen uh, because it wasn't that taxing to walk forwards and backwards and turn right. So we took the mickey in the back room and I don't think it went down too well. I hope he didn't... Um... Call the Queen anything rude like you did Tony Blair? No, no. I had my I had my mouth firmly shut. Um, but it was yeah, what an honour to, to meet the Queen. I think I've met the Queen maybe three or three or four times then. Do you have any superstitions? Um, no, I don't. I think superstitions are a load of codswallops, oh. and I don't think anything you do is going to affect how you perform unless you let it in your head. So, yeah, no superstitions. Did you have any, in the changing rooms, I know people put their pads on certain ways and stuff. Was there any? Oh, any so, many, so many people had superstitions. The, the worst one that I, I knew was um, a lad called Neil Pickenzie who played in South Africa. And somebody taped his back to the roof as a, as a prank <laughs> to go out. And he went out and scored 100. So in big games, he want people to tape his back to the roof. You weren't allowed to tidy up. Everything, if there was a piece of rubbish on a seat, you couldn't put, pick up the rubbish and put it away when he was waiting to bat. Everything had to stay exactly how it was. Uh, and they had silly, he had to put his bat over the line two or three times at the end of every over, then open the imaginary door, then step through. Yeah, there were so many people that had so many silly, silly superstitions. But hey, if it helped them, it helped them. So yeah, unless... Unless it was affecting you, just let, let them be. Hoggy, we've got a question from a listener who's got in touch with the podcast. And if anyone wants to get in touch with a question for a future guest or a story to tell us, then please email twsportspodcast at hotmail.com. But our question today actually is something that you kind of just mentioned a little bit. The question is, you've been on lots of tours with England. What's the best prank and the biggest pranks that you've played with? Oh, wow, wow, we will. Um... There's been lots of pranks over the years, um, like turning the trousers up on your dress trousers. So on the flight home, you've got three-quarter length <laughs> trousers. I've tried to find the, the, the clean ones. 
one of the funniest pranks I think I've seen is that when we we're all sponsored by VW, we all had Torex, and everybody was in the chain. Um, I was out out on the training, and I was bored, so I swapped everybody's keys around. So everybody had this exact same keys in the changing room. So I kept on swapping them around. So everybody would be walking up to their car and pressing the button and not getting into the car and thinking that the, the car wouldn't open. And it took them a while to work out which keys belonged to who. Uh, but so many, just nailing, nailing your coffins and your bags to the floor, and putting bananas down the back of people's bags, putting fish into the air vent in cars. There's been so many different um pranks you strike me hoggy as um, a bit of a prankster yourself were you one of the main pranksters in the dressing room i got a little bit bored from now and then <laughs> but i bet that meant people got their own back on you a lot um you just they've got to find out it's you first you just deny all knowledge it wasn't me like like shaggy said it wasn't me was there ever an opposition player that you found really irritating and why all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, batters that I couldn't get out, they're always irritating. Um, Justin Langer used to get on my um, on my nerves. Um, he had such a high squeaky voice and he was such a goody two-shoes. He was so, f- yeah. Yeah, Justin Langer most probably would be the, 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 the guy that annoyed me the most just because he was goody two-shoes. Lots of this when you're out to bat, high squeaky voice. And when he batted, he wasn't to such a bad batter anyway and, and scored quite a few runs against us. So I'd say Justin Langer. And kind of what you just said, is there a certain batsman that stands out as, as being the greatest batsman you've ever played balls against? Ah, so greatest. Everybody asks you about the greatest batsman. And when you've played against the likes of Brian Lara, Sachin Tendulkar, Jack Callis, Ricky Ponting, Inzaman Ulhag, Jay Odina, Sangri Carter. Dravid, the names keep on rolling off your tongue um, and everybody will have an opinion who, who they, they think is the best batter. Um, but I, would, I think I'd go back to Brian Lara and saying that Brian Lara had so many gears and could hit the same ball in 360 degrees. So um, I would say Brian Lara as a whole would be the most difficult to bowl at. You have been ranked as England's greatest ever bowler by BBC Sport. How does it feel being ranked as number one? Damn lies and stats. You can get um, stats to say anything you like. And it, it's really nice to, to, to be on top of that pile. But when you say Jimmy Anderson's got 500 plus wickets and I got 248 wickets, then... I think you'll find that James Anderson might be a little bit better than me. <laughs> um, or twice as good as me, if you look at the, the amount of wickets that he's got. Uh, but yeah, it, it is again, it's, it's a nice accolade. It's a nice achievement. It's a nice stat to have. Greatest ever bowler. I'm ranked as the batters that they got out. But not a firm believer that I am. <laughs> uh, but it is nice to be recognised. In your autobiography, you say that cricket is a batsman's game. If you could go back to the start of your career, would you stay being an opening bowler or would you rather be an opening batsman? I think I'd play golf. (laughs) 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 Um, I, I always describe the perfect cricketer as somebody that can bowl a bit of mystery spin, bat at six or seven and slap it, and stand up first slip all day. 
So basically, well, I know he's not a spinner, but basically Freddie Flintoff. Bit of Freddie Flintoff, maybe a bit of shame warm. A little bit of spin, stand at first slip, <laughs> slap it. Um, yeah, so some, yeah, that, that's the best That's the best job. Nobody wants to run up and bust a gut bowling fast if you can spin it both ways without it. So if you could combine a Muller-Rithron um, come Shane Warne bowling-wise with a Upatsa, with, with, with an Adam Gilchrist, that would be a brilliant hell of a player. cricketer stand, standing at first slip instead of keeping because keeping, that takes a lot of work as well. So first slip, you're not going to get too many catches come your way during the day. So you only have to concentrate for a small period of time when it comes towards you. Uh, and the other time, you can chat a load of rubbish to nonsense to, to your fellow, fellow teammates, bowl a bit of mystery spin, and then put your feet up have a large lunch while, you, while you're batting or bowling, and bat at six or seven. It, that's the life. You make it sound so easy. It would be. <laughs> now, if we had a cricketer like that, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Is it true that a friend bet you a fiver that you couldn't get this girl to go on a date with you and now <laughs> that girl is your wife? It certainly is. <laughs> 24 years and going strong. How does she feel about that story? <laughs> I don't know, ask her. <laughs> well, it's obviously a, a good bet that your, your friend did. Yes, good fiver. Good fiver. No, he still owes me a fiver. I have been told oh, to ask you about VVX Lexman's story. Yeah, VVX Lexman. So when I was playing 13 cricket, a, a, a guy called Phil Carrick um, came into to Putty Kongs, took one look at me playing 13 and, and put me into the first team. And in that team was a certain Vanky Purupu Vanky Desai Laxman. Halfway through my first season of uh, of club cricket in Bradford League, Phil Carrick turned around and said, you and VVS will play um, test cricket together. And we sort of like pooed that, laughed, at, laughed in his face thinking, what is he on about? I've just come from the third team into a first team uh, club standard. And VVS had come over from India and was our overseas, hadn't played first class cricket over in India. That he saw something in us both and said, you two will play test cricket against each other, which we laughed at. And then seven years later, um, in front of a full house in Eden Gardens, so 100,000 people, um, we, that, that dream came true. That came into fruition that BBS and I played test cricket against each other. And if I hadn't been for Phil Carrick picking me out of the third team and putting me in the first team, um, I, I don't think I'd have played cricket. So... It was something that Phil Carrick saw in me and VVS at the time and that got us into the club side. And he had the foresight to say, you play test cricket against each other. And he was right. You can have dinner with three people, past or present. Who are you choosing and why? Wow, wow, we were. Um, Who would I choose? Three people. Very difficult question. Um, Kevin Bridges. Because I think he's hilarious. I love Kevin Bridges. Um, who else am I gonna? Um, I'm gonna. I want to know about um, secrets of um, Area 50, 52 over in America. So whoever whoever runs that, I'd like I'd like to to have dinner with that. 
And then um, Tutankhamun, because I want to know how they built the pyramids. That's an interesting, interesting dinner table. I think so. Yeah, lots to talk about. Since retiring from cricket, you have been doing a number of things such as punditry, TV work, cooking and coaching. What do you still do to keep yourself busy? Um, I've opened up a barbecue school. So we now teach people how to grill properly. Um, so very busy with that. Um, I've got a 14 year old son, which takes up a lot of time. I've got three dogs. Um, but the barbecue school, because we launched it last year, um, it's taken up a lot of time to get it up and running. And it's always quite tricky to, to open up a school and get clients in when um, you're in lockdown. So we, we, we're, um, Hoggy's Grill is keeping us very busy trying to, trying to get some people in, which is getting more busier and busier and, um, and enjoying every moment of it. So has that been, because I've seen your, your social media and some of the, the food you cook is just unbelievable. Has that always been a passion of yours or is that something you've done recently? Yeah, I, I've always been interested in cooking um, and eating. Uh, and I was lucky enough to go to South Africa at the age of 18 for six months. And they do a lot of what they call braai, um, which is our equivalent of barbecuing. But they, they do it properly over real wood and real meats and, and real food. So it's, it sort of ignited my passion of, of being around fire and cooking decent food. And I'm lucky enough now to to have a business that teaches people in the UK how to how to get the most out of their, their grill. And that when you go to the UK and you say, right, we'll have a barbecue, people rush in and get their, their, their burgers, their sausage and their chicken. They burn their sausage, they get rubbish burgers from the supermarket and either undercook or overcook the chicken. So I want to educate about how good food can taste on a grill and that there's nothing you can't cook on, on a grill that you can cook inside. Basically, Harvey, you've described my barbecue I had last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I, 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 yeah, I'm one of these. I get some burgers, get some sausages. I burn them because I don't want to kill anyone. <laughs> and, and that's it. So I definitely need a few lessons. Yeah, well, hoggishgrill.com. Cool, can see us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hoggy, for taking the time to chat with us today. We... Really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tom and Thomas. Adam, I don't know if it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, uh, Hoggy. We've really appreciated it and it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And actually, it's it's been really fun to speak to you. You had lots of interesting stories to tell, made us laugh. So, (laughs) So brilliant. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. And Tom, so for our next podcast, boys, any idea who's coming up next? Yeah, so next week we have another great guest coming up. Next week we'll be speaking to an Irish rugby international. He won the Grand Slam in the Six Nations with Ireland in 2018 and was part of the Irish team who beat New Zealand for the first time in their history. We'll be joined by scrum half Kieran Marmion. He will be a really interesting guest. Can't wait to speak with him. Our TWS Sports podcast is released every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. The TWS Sports podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast streams. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hoggy, and thanks, lads, and see you next week. Cheers, boys. 
Hi, Matthew Hoggard here. Please subscribe to TWS Sports Podcast where you can listen to my thoughts. That won't take too long. Uh, other great guests that will be on and Tom and Thomas because they are great hosts. Sports Social Podcast Network.